So welcome everyone to tonight's session of the Religions and the Practice of Peace uh, Colloquium, uh, our uh, first one obviously of the spring semester. Um, I'd like to start off by expressing our uh, uh, appreciation to our guest speaker, Dr. Scott Appleby, for being with us here this evening, um, and to the El Hibri Foundation for its support of this year's RPP series. I'd also like to express our gratitude to the Reverend Karen Vickers Budney and uh, Mr. Albert Budney for their generous support of RPP and to the students and volunteers for their work in coordinating tonight's <clears throat> event. And like, uh, as always, would like to thank Lizlie Hood for uh, so much of the, um, uh, of the preparation work and organization. So very grateful to all of you who have um, uh, chipped in to make this uh, 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 an important evening. So we're convinced that amidst the great diversity of our human family, the quest of bringing about more humane, just, and harmonious relationships conducive to sustainable peace will require the moral engagement and commitment of all of us as leaders, educators, members of religious communities, and global citizens. How the wisdom and energies of our spiritual traditions can contribute these endeavors is, we believe, an issue of vital contemporary concern in which we all have a stake and where each one of us, no matter our specialization or profession or personal connection to religion, has a great deal to contribute as well as a great deal to learn. Here at Harvard, with the Divinity School's deep resources in theology and ministry and the study of world religion, and the university's unparalleled cross-disciplinary expertise and global, out and global reach, we see enormous potential for us to make a positive, practical impact in this arena going forward for the benefit of our own and of future generations. We therefore launched the RPP initiative at the Divinity School last academic year to serve as a permanent hub at Harvard dedicated to cross-disciplinary engagement, scholarship, and practice, focusing on how individuals and communities, past and present, have drawn on religious and spiritual resources to foster well-being, justice, and peace across differences, and how these efforts can inform the theory and practice of conflict, transformation, peace-building, and leadership. This monthly RPP colloquium series um, convenes a cross-disciplinary working group of faculty, experts, alumni, and graduate students right across Harvard schools and beyond um, to uh, other uh, Boston universities and to other institutions um, to explore topics in this important area. Members of our working group include affiliates of the Divinity School, the Law School, the Kennedy School of Government, the School of Education, the Medical School, the Business School, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Design, as well as faculty from UMass Boston, Tufts, Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, the Hartford Seminary, and American University, and others, as I've got business cards in my pocket that I met tonight from Beijing and other places, and Rwanda. Um, so thank you all for coming. Last semester, we were fortunate to have a richly informative and inspiring series of scholars, practitioners, and religious peace builders to share their insights with us. We had four great evening colloquia last semester that I know many of you were at. Um, um, the last one was the pastor and the imam from Nigeria, which was really a, 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 a tremendous occasion. 
And we're looking forward to an equally impressive lineup this spring. So please do uh, visit our website, make sure you're apprised of what we're doing, and um, book in your calendars these evenings throughout the spring semester. We'd love to see you here. The graduate students in the working group are enrolled in the colloquium as a course, so we put them to work, and have prepared in advance for tonight's session. Following the presentation by the guest speaker, we'll have a period of conversation between the speaker and the working group, and the people doing all the hard work, before the Q&A is opened up to the entire audience. Um, so do be a little patient with us. If you're visiting, you will get an opportunity also to pose a question, which has once been well said as a sentence with a question mark at the end of it. Um, the students will kick off the working group conversation for us with a few questions, um, uh, and then that will get us going. My own interest in these matters, as many of you know, did not start uh, primarily as an academic one, but came about through my uh, personal experience living through the Troubles in, uh, in Belfast in the um, uh, late 60s, early 70s, and then later as Professor of Modern History and, and Director of the School of History in Queen's University, Belfast, where these issues were obviously a matter of great import. Um, that painful and difficult experience indelibly impressed upon me both the tragic manner in which religion can be used to um, incite violence, as well as the ways in which religion can serve as a powerful community resource for healing and reconciliation. So we're honored um, uh, this evening to have uh, with us one of the luminaries of this field, a fellow historian, uh, a fellow sufferer in the, in the world of deaning. Um, <laughs> Um, who was among the earliest scholars to bring insight on this aspect of religion to the attention of the academy and the policy-making world through his groundbreaking book, The Ambivalence of the Sacred, uh, published in 2000. Um, a professor of history, a scholar of global religion, and a pioneer in the academic study of religious peacebuilding, Dr. Scott Appleby is the Maryland Keogh Dean of the Keogh School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. And in addition to his seminal ambivalence of the sacred, he has authored, edited, or co-authored more than a dozen books on modern religion. He obviously never sleeps, including <laughs> such titles as Strong Religion, uh, Peace Building, Catholic Theology, Ethics, and Praxis, and Catholics in the American Century, Recasting Narratives of American History. With Martin Marty, Dr. Appleby directed the Fundamentalism Project of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, um, and co-edited the widely cited five-volume series on this topic. It's a wonderful collection of um, um, uh, books on uh, global fundamentalism, which I can honestly say I've read quite a bit of, and uh, so thank you so much for that. Uh, from 2000 to 2014, he served as the Reagan Director of Notre Dame's Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. He also co-chaired the Chicago Council on Global Affairs Task Force on Religion and the Making of U.S. Foreign Policy which released the influential report, um, Engaging Religious Communities Abroad, a New Imperative for U.S. Foreign Policy, that was produced in 2010. More recently, uh, most recently, he co-edited with Italia Omar, who also gave one of our endowed lectures recently here, the Greeley Lecture, I think. Um, uh, uh, so he co-edited with Italia uh, Omar and with David Little's help, I think, the Oxford Handbook of Religion, Conflict and Peacebuilding. Um, uh, which is a great volume in which he has a very fine essay, which I spent the, the morning reading, so I feel right up to date. 
He also serves as lead editor of the OUP series, Studies in Strate Strategic Peacebuilding. So uh, Dr. Appleby graduated from Notre Dame, earned his PhD from the University of Chicago, and is the recipient of three honorary degrees. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Sciences, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, which is just right over there. So for anyone with serious interest in this field, the Oxford Handbook of Religion, Conflict, and Peacebuilding that um, Dr. Appleby recently accredited is indispensable reading, addressing a whole host of critical issues and directions in the field. His own thought-provoking article, which is called The New Name for Peace, Religion and Development as Partners in Strategic Peacebuilding, calls attention to what is undoubtedly one of the most crucial intersections to be addressed by our human community and its quest for sustainable peace. We're therefore very delighted that uh, Dr. Appleby has offered to speak to us tonight on the subject of integral human development and the moral imagination, implications for religion, development, and peacemaking. Dr. Appleby, thanks so much. Thank you, Dean Hempton, for that gracious introduction, and thanks to Liz, wherever she is, for communicating and organizing this event. I, I appreciate, there you are, thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be back in this room again. I've been here a number of times, including, memorably for me, the, the occasion of the retirement of my good friend David Little, who was here at Harvard for some years and is still very active, as Dean Hempton said, in, in this uh, co-editing with us the recent handbook, which I can say more about in our question and answer and discussion period. Um, I'm going to uh, speak for a while, but before, at the beginning and the end of my formal presentation, I'm an inveterate professor, so I have to engage the crowd. <laughs> so you need to participate as well in the very beginning and toward the end. So here's the very beginning. I'd like to see what you think about the term development here I don't mean what Harvard does so well and Notre Dame also well in terms of developing uh, funds for the university, but I mean uh, the effort to develop societies economically and otherwise that's been going on for many decades. How do you understand what's your, what's your impression of that, of its successes and failures? What comment would you make on development as you understand it? What do you understand about it? What would you say about it? I need at least three responses before I can get started. So obviously there, have, there could be three from this group right here alone. I'll take two from this group, but then I'm gonna press the other folks who are not in this uh, select section here to also just tell me what you, what's your understanding of the term development in a global sense, the effort to lift people out of poverty. Let's just make it succinct that way, a nuance. What do you, what's your impression of it? how it's unfolded, what its goals are, how successful it's been, or not. You didn't think I was going to put you to work right away, did you? Yes, please. Spiritually. And, uh, Everybody here? Can you hear? And I don't entirely agree with him, but, uh, but I do think it makes a, a point as to what constitutes development. Okay, terrific. That's terrific that the cab driver 
running over the potholes. Said there are a lot of spiritual potholes in America. Yes. You're anticipating part of my thesis in a helpful way. Thank you. That's 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 great. Well said. Anyone else? Please. I mean, that's modernization theory has a lot of assumptions that we wouldn't share today, especially about relationship to so-called developing societies, third world societies. Okay, good. Um, before I go into my text, I'll simply say that when, when I talk to audiences and, and people have different understandings and appreciations of development, I'm still learning a great deal of it myself. It's not my field, but as dean of a new school that specializes in development, I've had to learn a lot real quickly. So I'm still learning. And I have to be careful to be as balanced as possible in what I say about development. The way I'm using the term refers to the efforts of primarily Western nations, United States and Western Europe, immediately following World War II that began with the reconstruction of Europe, the, the rapid reconstruction of Europe, kind of an amazing uh, achievement. If you read Tony Judd's post-war, it's just, just overwhelming, actually, how much was done in, in relatively quick, quick order. But from that moment on, you could start in that moment where world leaders began to recognize the simple truth of globalization of a sort, namely that <clears throat> where we will, um, if we uh, don't hang together, we will certainly hang separately, to, to quote uh, from a different context. That is to say, we're all <clears throat> uh, interdependent globally. And even in sheer materialist or economic terms, uh, as markets uh, become more global and economic trade and interaction become uh, absolutely necessary, then to have large portions of the world in poverty, in, in dire poverty, at not able to purchase scotch tape or whatever it may be, and also the instability, the conflict that could come from that and so on, that this is not a good thing and therefore that the wealthier nations of the world would need to form various alliances. Remember, this is the Bretton Woods period where the World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations, these global institutions are, are developed with the idea of lifting people out of poverty, uh, providing access to what we today might describe as basic human rights, human needs, and to do so through a variety of projects that have now, I could say here, largely failed. 
And that might be an overstatement. If there were, and there may be, development experts here, they would immediately object because that would be unbalanced, I think. Because I, I think the empirical record is that um, on the one hand, there has been incredible waste and uh, billions of dollars and projects that have gone awry and that there is at least as much of a narrative of failure and negative impacts and unintended consequences that a couple of you articulated as there have been shining successes. Now the nuance of that or the balancing bit is things are getting better, there is more success, the millennial development goals were relatively successful, they were not perfect, and the sustainable development goals are at least um, at least a step in the direction of alleviating extreme poverty. These are all shot through with flaws, but they have, there have been some notable successes in the reduction of infant mortality rates, for example, uh, fighting against malaria. There's a number of markers that Millennial Development Goals clearly succeeded, and many of them failed. So part of the question is why the failure? My, my overview of what I want to talk about tonight, some, not much of it probably will be new to most of you, but I'm gonna try to tie together a few different kind of strands of literature and thinking. Um, and the, the summary thesis is as follows. I wanna speak about integral human development, integral human development, a concept which has been articulated in Roman Catholic social teaching but very resonant in other religious and secular traditions in various ways. Uh, their, their resonances in other traditions. This approach, integral human development, levels a serious critique at narrowly technical and secular global efforts to build peace, eradicate poverty, and provide basic human needs such as healthcare and education to underdeveloped societies still use that term, we put scare quotes around it, in part because of the comment you made, what counts for development. We can talk more about that later. Reading IHD, Integral Human Development, through the lens of John Paul Lederach's rendering of the immoral imagination, allows us to envision and elaborate a sustainable partnership between professional development actors, religious peace builders, and religious communities. So I'm trying to tie together a little bit on integral human development, talk a little bit about the essay uh, that David Hempton referred to uh, on religion and development, and, and see how John Paul's moral imagination lens might, might be a bridge between these things in a way. Just to anticipate what your next round of questions will be, I know you all know all of John Paul's work, so you're going to carry that part of the lecture. During his fall 2015 visit to the United States, Pope Francis repeatedly invoked the term integral human development as the comprehensive goal to be embraced by all people of goodwill who seek the common good of humankind. In his address to the United Nations on September the 25th, the Holy Father declared that with respect to the newly adopted sustainable development goals, the successors to the MDGs, quote, the simplest and best measure and indicator of the implementation of this new agenda for development, the Sustainable Development Goals, will be effective, practical, and immediate access on the part of all to essential material and spiritual goods, housing, 
dignified and properly remunerated employment, adequate food and drinking water, religious freedom, and more generally, spiritual freedom and education. These pillars of integral human development, he used that phrase seven times in the address to the United Nations, have a common foundation, which is the right to life and more generally, what we could call the right to existence of human nature itself, the existence of human nature itself. Moreover, later, acknowledging the central role of conflict prevention and peace building, the Pope asked, uh, the Pope added, war is the negation of all rights and a dramatic assault on the environment. If we want true integral human development for all, we must work tirelessly to avoid war between nations and between peoples, close quote. While observing that peace and development go hand in hand, Pope Francis also recognized that little progress can be expected in these arenas in the absence of effective governance and robust political institutions. So what do we mean then by integral human development? A concise definition would be the state of a society in which the irreducible dignity of a human person and the cultural and spiritual, as well as economic and material requirements of human flourishing are central to political and social life and upheld by the rule of law. I'll repeat that again. There is a quiz for this group afterwards. <laughs> a kind of succinct definition. The state of a society in which the irreducible dignity of the human person and the cultural and spiritual, as well as the economic and material requirements of human flourishing are central to political and social life and upheld by the rule of law. Integral human development, as I mentioned, is a kind of, that term as such is of Catholic provenance, but the ideas and values underlying it find echo in many other religious, philosophical, and wisdom traditions. And indeed, if I have the time, I don't want to go over, I can talk about um, parallel developments in the secular development world. You, we don't want to, this is not a Catholic triumphalism speech where we invented all this and came up with it. And uh, there have been parallel un, uh, understandings that have kind of emerged alongside this particular tradition. Uh, I'm simply going to focus on this one. At its core is the conviction that the dignity of the human person is expressed in work and economic activity, but also in cultural richness, artistic creativity, religious belonging, and spiritual practice. Most profoundly, human dignity is expressed in our relationships with and obligations to family, community, and all of humanity in solidarity, especially with the suffering and the poor. In the Catholic tradition, this term was first coined in 1967 by Pope Paul VI in his encyclical on the development of peoples, Populorum Progressio, in which he identified uh, integral human development as a good in itself, but also as a critique of narrow empirical and secular understandings of the, of the human person and human experience. The concept was also offered as a corrective to a development effort already underway by the mid-60s that was uh, overly focused on the accumulation of material wealth alone to the detriment of other aspects of integral human development, as the church saw it. Subsequent popes, including John Paul II and Benedict XVI, have elaborated this concept that Paul VI first developed in Populum Progressio. The world's largest private humanitarian relief development organization, Catholic Relief Services, 
takes this concept as its framework and mission, integral human development. If you want to check their website and their language about it, we use it a slightly differently at Notre Dame, but it's re quite recognizable. Four major criteria are implied for religious actors who engage in development and peace building. Integral human development has these implications for religious actors. First, peace building and development must take into account each individual person as well as the society at large and privilege the whole person who cannot be reduced to a function, number, social category, or imposed identity. You can see that for the Catholic Church, as well as other traditions, there is a critique embedded in this, a critique that can unfold as, as interhuman development really comes home to roost, so to speak. So the person cannot be defined by function, number, social category, or, or identity of various kinds. Each person is understood not only as the site of material needs or the consumer of goods or the citizen or political subject or the creator and bearer of culture or the inheritor of a particular history, social identity, and set of relationships or the members of a religious community or voluntary network. Rather, each person is understood to stand at the nexus of many, if not all, of these complex, overlapping, and co-imbricated dimensions of human life. The human person is an integral, interdependent, connected being striving for wholeness, that is, for the integration of body, mind, spirit, and community. Similarly, an approach to development that avoids an exclusive focus on narrowly technical uh, solutions or material conditions also recognizes that the concrete challenges confronting human dignity and flourishing, political oppression, deadly conflict, climate change, structural injustice, grinding poverty, and the like, these conditions are themselves interrelated and impervious to isolated solutions. So integration has a different valence here. The need for integrated solutions that draw upon if the human person is not only homo economicus, but a person of culture, of religion, of art, of creativity, of governance, and so on, then obviously the approach to development cannot be narrowly technical or economic. It has to flourish across disciplines and across sectors of knowledge. This is not at all to say that we don't need technology or big data or analytics or many of the tools that are absolutely fantastic and that hold real promise and are being used in the field now, including smart technology for development purposes. They're really, really wonderful uh, in, you know, as tools. But when they become the sole focus and they, they are not meant to serve a greater good, there can be problems, of course. Accordingly, the peace builder or development actor must draw on the various disciplines, as I've mentioned, uh, not just take one approach. Second, another implication for religious actors from this integral human development lens, taking into account the requirements of dignity and the just demands of all members of society, development must not be isolated, even though it may focus on economic and material conditions, it cannot be isolated from the related political and social and cultural context that determine its ultimate efficacy. This is against the critique that you articulated so well. The, the tendency in the history of much of the global development efforts to believe that the technical and material, the more advanced or developed civilizations, have a certain method and process, and that this is one size fits all in a way. You, you, you parachute in, you implement it, um, and, and you uh, have various kind of interactions with local actors, but there, there hasn't been what 
to anticipate our discussion of Lederach, what he calls the elicitive method. This is referred to in various ways. That effective development is with human beings. <laughs> Sounds like a big insight. But they're human beings who are embedded in a particular culture, a particular society with their own history, religion, values. And if you're developing the entire person embedded in community and, and you kind of parachute in and are, are um, ignorant of the, the attendant social, political history and context, you're bound to fail. You're bound to do worse than fail, have a kind of boomerang effect. My favorite line, I should pay royalties, not that I get any, but royalties to the president of Northwestern University on this point, Morton Shapiro. I, when I, I became dean of this new school that takes integral human development as its mission statement, he gave us a, a speech in Chicago, and he said, uh, he, was, he was talking to just some of the leadership team at Notre Dame, and he's talked about something else, but his initial anecdote was this. He's, he's I didn't realize this. He said, you know, I'm a development economist by training, he said. And uh, I was working in Nigeria in the 90s, in the early 90s, when Nigeria discovered its vast oil resources. And I was working with the World Bank and a consultant with the World Bank. And we went to Nigeria. Pause. And everything we told them was wrong. Everything we told them was wrong. Why? We knew how to get the oil out of the ground. We knew how to get it to market. We knew how to value it. We knew how to, we had no idea about the religion, the cultures, the ethnic groups, the regional diversity of the place, completely. If you've noticed, Nigeria is not yet the poster child for authentic human development that really prospers and creates stability. And I don't want to blame that all on the World Bank, much less on Morton Shapiro, but his point was, <laughs> Everything we told them was wrong. Now, it's hyperbole, certainly, but in, in, a, in another sense, it's not. And that was the problem, because they came in, and that's the early 90s, knew nothing about the culture. We knew nothing, you know, except whatever we read along on the plane, right? And that, that was disastrous, he said, a real self-critique. Um, so that, that, in a sense, makes the second point. I'll move on. Third and closely related, these complex problems cannot be addressed effectively by the disciplines of the academy alone, although people are recognizing the disciplines of the academy are absolutely necessary in, in development work. You know, that the university has a real role. Determining what the university's role is is an unfolding conversation. But certainly, no hubris, the academy isn't going to solve this alone, but there must, must be, and it's difficult, it's very difficult, Effective partnerships built with government agencies, non-governmental organizations, the networks and movements of civil society, and the private sector. One of the challenges of this work is that you have to have governments involved, of various, both the, the local government, but also other governments leaning in in various ways that are constructive. You, the private sector, you mentioned corporate, the private sector is not going to go away, and in a way, you don't want it to go away, but in any case, it's not. And the question is, what, how do we go beyond impact investing to corporate social responsibility that, that reflects a kind of orientation to human dignity? The orientation to human individual, the individual human person is sacred, or whatever language one uses, conveying that. You can't take uh, an attitude toward collateral damage economically or militarily, it's just unacceptable. Not only is it unacceptable on humanitarian and moral grounds, it's unacceptable in terms of efficacious development. It just fails. 
it, it comes up to, to bite you, so to speak. Fourth, to address complicated conflict and development problems, one partner cannot be neglected and must be centrally engaged. And that partner, of course, is the local peoples and societies with whom peace builders and development practitioners must work. These people are not clients, dependents, or recipients of development. For our efforts to be effective, they must be full partners in development, and in fact, in many ways, leaders in development. This commitment to an elicitive method of development and peace building is implied by the vocation to advance integral human development. There is a peace builder on campus at Notre Dame some months ago who's worked around the world, and he opened his talk by saying, I will never go into a society again as a peace builder unless I can speak the language. And he told the example of being in Burundi, and he happened to have worked in Burundi for many years, and he knew the language, the language that was being spoken by government officials, the native, one of the, one of the native dialects. And he was in the room with the Archbishop um, Bujumbura, who was a key player in, a, uh, in the peace process that was ongoing at the time. And he was there with a, an African, this, this was a Dutch person I'm referring to. He was there with a Kenyan. And they both listened, so the Kenyan you know, is, is African but not Burundian. And they listened to this Archbishop speak about a topic. And they, an important central kind of sensitive issue for the peace process. And they came out of the meeting and they debriefed. And the Kenyan said, well, wasn't it interesting that he said X? And the friend from the Netherlands said, no, 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 he, he said Y. He's, he said A, this, this one said X and Y. Completely different interpretations of what that Archbishop was saying. So they took it to uh, someone who uh, was in the government who knows the archbishop, knows the language, knows the nuances of the language in a way neither one of them really did. But the Dutch friend was right. It just so happened. He said, no, 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 no. Don't dare interpret it this way. You'll really screw up. Well, that requires a kind of nuance that's really, it's a challenge for educators. Um, maybe less so at a very rich place like Boston, educationally, intellectually rich place like Boston, Harvard, MIT. You've got a great some places, but it, even here, you know, it's a challenge to try to educate, train, form people who are going to go into the field in development and really get the cultural nuances. Of course, if you're from that region, there's an advantage. I don't want to digress because there's a challenge there. We might want to talk about how to do that. Um, in culture, religion, history, and personal subjectivity, if, sorry, if culture, religion, history, and personal subjectivity are to be taken seriously as essential expressions of human dignity and thus of effective human development, we have to avoid, avoid a one-size-fits-all approach. This is not to deny that solutions to poverty, illness, and like must be technically, empirically verified and scalable. No, no denial there. But it is to insist that in devising the solutions, we must elicit cues, insights, proposals, and evaluations from the people most directly affected by interventions. The work of development and peace building cannot be for external actors alone. It must be fully owned by the local population. In his address to the United Nations, Pope Francis made this point forcefully. I quote, to enable these real men and women to escape from extreme poverty, we must allow them to be dignified agents of their own destiny. Integral human development and the full exercise of human dignity cannot be imposed. 
By the way, parenthetically, I interrupt the Pope there for a moment. The, um, there is, this question of human dignity is itself a rich and complicated question. There are different attitudes. What does that mean, human dignity? How do we measure that? How do we know we've met it? And there are two, at least two fundamental points of view on this that are interesting, but they're different. One point of view, which I identify with a Catholic point of view, is that from the moment of conception or birth, depending, you know, there's internal debate about that, but anyway, so the moment of conception slash birth, the person has an inherent human dignity. The person is in the image of God, creating the image of God. No one gives that person dignity. So the goal of development, of peace building and so forth, is to create external conditions commensurate to what that individual already has inherently that you can't give them. I can't give you dignity. I can treat you with dignity. I can treat you in a way that's commensurate to dignity, to your dignity, but I don't give it to you and I don't take it away. It's transcendent, it's innate, whatever term you want to use. And then there's another point of view that holds that no, there's a creature there, yes, but there are certain standards that once you cross those thresholds, you're, you've, meet, you've met hum, the standards of human dignity. Now, I think that could be a dangerous, this is not to get into that debate, now, that could be a dangerous way of looking at it, but it, in fact, we had a conference in Rome a couple of years ago on this, and there were a number of people from various development and religious traditions and so forth, and there was really a debate on this about you know, what, what does dignity mean? So I'm acknowledging that the Pope is speaking, and I am partly speaking in this talk, with a kind of assumption that dignity is inherent in simply being human. So back to the Pope. Um, interview human development, human dignity, cannot, these exercise dignity cannot be imposed. They must be built up and allowed to unfold for each individual, for every family, in communion with others, and in a right relationship with all those areas in which human social life develops. Friends, communities, towns and cities, schools, businesses, unions, provinces, nations, etc. This presupposes and requires the right to education, also for girls, which are, who are excluded in many places, which is ensured first and foremost by respecting and reinforcing the privacy right of the family to educate its children, as well as the right of churches and social groups to support or assist families in the education of their children. This is the basis for the implementation of the 2030 Agenda and for reclaiming the environment, he means the Sustainable Development Goals. The flaw of many, that's the end of that quote, the flaw of many traditional development approaches emerges from their perception of human beings as primarily, if not exclusively, economic creatures. Moreover, the human experience is rooted in the search for meaning and justice. This quest is mirrored in the relationship we form and the values we hold by participation in art, music, self-governance, etc. Poverty in the broadest sense of the world, of the word, therefore, derives from a failure to fully satisfy or provide the conditions in which these human needs and hopes can be realized. Uh, they are not discrete or distinct, these conditions. They are integrally interwoven. Access to clean drinking water, reliable medical care, and adequate shelter depend on an elaborate network of factors. Dividing the human experience into multiple categories is necessitated by the desire to understand and address poverty. As an analytical tool, the categories enable us to delve deeper into the challenge of human development and craft more nuanced responses. However, it is important not to lose sight of the inherent interconnectedness of these factors. Solutions to the world's global challenges can only be effective if they consider the entire landscape, including the culture, values, and needs of those we seek to serve. 
one of the more promising development, uh, developments within development agencies and organizations and peace builders is a recognition of a kind of all hands on deck approach where there has to be conversation across these sectors and across disciplines. Because you can, of course, be in your comfort zone and understand how to uh, fertilize this field or how to get goods to market, or you might be a specialist on the history of it, but there, there has to be an ongoing interaction and deliberation. And all these things are logistically challenging in various ways, but they, they are necessary to this model. Placing the individual at the nexus of development efforts is transformative in two ways. First, it recognizes the agency of those in developing countries and rejects the notion that externally designed and implemented approaches can adequately address their needs. Regardless of the expertise of well-intentioned outsiders, the primary agents of development but must be those who are most affected. Second, it prioritizes the dignity of every person, which alters the metrics of success. To say human dignity and respecting human dignity has us think twice about what the metrics of success might be. Um, and it's a little bit, I don't want it, this is worth more conversation, but your comment about, I, I don't know that I'd endorse it entirely the way you phrase it, that simple life is better, because that can, and I don't know you didn't mean it that way, but that can sometimes be, you know, uh, uh, an excuse for not working hard to develop the material conditions. On the other hand, the metrics for what counts for de development, if they're taken from one particular cultural matrix of this, well, you need this, you need that, and do you have your iPhone? In fact, they do have their iPhones around the world, but do you need this, that, and the other thing? That has to be negotiated. You know, what does it mean to, to kind of recognize your human dignity? What do we do to ensure that? And the metrics are gonna, are gonna be variable if the human person and human dignity is, is uh, the scale or the, the metric itself. Um, I should move along, um, but I, I, have, I have more on this that I can share the text itself. Um, I also have a large section just to let you know that I'm, I'm going to skip over so we can get to questions in a few minutes um, about parallel trends, the non-Catholic triumphalism part of this talk. So I mentioned the capabilities approach that you're you're, uh, I think many of you would be familiar with, of Amartya Sen and Martha Nussbaum, which has some, some very comparable ideas, different package, different approach, different philosophical assumptions in some cases, but really quite amenable to, and in conversation with this notion of IHD and human development. I mentioned the um, Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative that started in 2010, some of you may know of, which developed a multi-dimensional poverty index and was much more elicitive of, uh, in, in developing that index of local, cultural, social, historical, political context. And then a little bit more about the millennial development goals and the sustainable development goals. And you know, you have, I think, a really remarkable, we're having a conference at Notre Dame the first week in April called For the Planet and the Poor. I think as a historian, I've partly studied Catholic social teaching and Catholicism in the 20th century, what a remarkable moment with number one, Pope Francis, full stop. That's remarkable. But the fact that the, that the Pope is the greatest advocate of a UN-driven project, the Sustainable Development Goals. And of course, the Pope and 
some of the people he's worked with on this has been severely criticized by other Catholics because on questions like abortion and reproductive rights, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's not as if this pope or the, or the Vatican is saying, we're all in one happy family, we all agree on these questions. But this pope has said clearly, we share so many common goals across the world. If you read Laudato Si, which you all should read, that's an assignment on care for our common home. It's really a remarkable document in which it's as inclusive as possible, uh, including of, of Catholic bishops, which is something kind of new. <laughs> he quotes Catholic bishops 17 times. Uh, that is his, his collegial approach to governing the church. But he also quotes you know, a Sufi mystic, and he quotes the Eastern patriarch, and he quotes scientists. And it's, it's really, he's saying, this is really a common, a common undertaking, an enterprise. And we have to be, and this, and he basically blessed the sustainable development goals. And the people who work, uh, we've interacted with a number of people who developed the sustainable development goals from places like Nigeria and elsewhere. And he is their hero. The fact that the Catholic Pope at this moment of convergence, we're in a crisis, the Pope says, as you know, if you read that, it's not two crises, it's not an environmental crisis and a poverty crisis, it's one crisis that's interwoven. Um, co-imbricated. And the fact that the Catholic Pope and uh, so one of the recognizable religious leaders of the world, not the only one, is coming together with basically secular uh, set of actors in a kind of common cause is, I think, striking. I don't, I, I actually, historians should never say anything is unprecedented, I think. But certainly in modern history, I, I uh, John the Twenty-Third spoke about the about the need for something like the United Nations. There have been instances of this, but nothing quite like what we see today. So uh, there's there's a lot in this longer talk about the parallel uh, trends and developments that have contributed to Catholic understanding of these issues, as well as benefited a little bit from the the social teaching of the Church. The second part I'll go through pretty quickly, and then we'll talk a little bit about John Paul. Then we'll have time to interact. So what does this, this notion of integral human development, how does it resonate in other religious traditions and communities, and what might it have to do with something that um, a few scholars now, more than a few, Catherine Marshall at Georgetown has been a leader in this, um, Al Stepan at Columbia, there are probably uh, half a dozen or more scholars and, and practitioners who have begun to recognize that um, we cannot keep religious, act let's put it negatively, you cannot keep religious actors out of development. You have to have them. Oh, do we really? Would be the, the attitude before too long ago from the major development, the IMF, the World Bank, many NGOs that, are, that understandably think of religions, and they can name the particular offenders, Catholicism being one, Islam being another, not to name names, but they can go further down, that are not good partners in development for this reason and that reason and so on. Do we want anything to do with them? The World Bank, the history of the World Bank is about 1,012 pages. It came out 10 years ago. The word religion is mentioned once in 1,012 pages, all right? Because there's a secular myopia many of you are familiar with in which you don't touch religion, it's poisonous, it's going to undo things. We don't have a, a complete consensus on reproductive questions, et cetera, gender, and so forth. And, you know, 
there's no shortage of dogmatism on any side of this argument, secular or religious, right? So, so what happened, talk about a moment of convergence, and I had to pinch myself, was last July, what is this, what month are we in? February almost, January. So just last July, the World Bank held a three-day conference at which the president of the World Bank attended and spoke and made pledges on religion and development. The need for faith-based partnerships, why? Because the Sustainable Development Goals call for ending extreme poverty. So they didn't try that in the Millennial Development Goals, but really reaching the poorest of the poor, uh, giving more attention to women and children. There's a whole list of new markers, so to speak, and they recognize in the World Bank and in the IMF and in the United Nations, you cannot do this without the religions even though we really would like to change some things about the religions. You can't do it with that. So three days, there were 200 people there, um, and they had an iftar dinner in the, the secular maw of the Western world, the lobby of the World Bank. There were 300 Muslims and then the rest of us joining in this dinner. It was, I really had to pinch myself. I walked up to Catherine Marshall, who's been working within the World Bank, and now, now that she's, I said, aren't you delighted? And she said, we'll see what the budget looks like when this is over. Which was a shrewd development. <laughs> but I said, look, let's take what we can get. That there's a three-day conference bringing religious leaders from around the world with development. Now, uh, why, why is this necessary? I guess since I'm going to depart from my text and move it along, I'm going to ask you a second question. Why, is it, why does the World Bank and why does the larger world, why is it waking up? to the importance of religious actors and religious traditions being involved in both peace building and development. Why don't we start with development? Why is that necessary? Or you can take either ones. Three, three questions and then I gotta move on. Three, three answers, I should say. Two from this, yes. The secularization thesis is, is not fully correct. You know, it, it's not going to vanish. It's not going to become privatized as much as some would like it to be. There is differentiation between religion and state, religion and secular society, and there is some decline in some areas, but there's no evidence that... All right, so it's not going away. What can we say more positively about why religious actors should be asked to be in partnership with... Uh, development organizations, both global ones and local NGOs, a whole host of thousands and thousands of players on the development. Why do they now recognize development? It's a powerful mobilizing force with a large, with large constituencies all over the world. Right, right. It's a powerful, I mean, it's undeniable that in so many parts of the world, especially the so-called developing world, that religion and faith of various kinds continues to, if we want to talk about human dignity, whatever language we use there, but it, as the World Bank and other actors have recognized the need for partnerships, and that was in the title of the World Bank Conference, partnerships with local people, and trying to build those partnerships by going around the religious communities is impossible in many cases, and certainly counterproductive. Right? It just doesn't work. So, Religions mobilize, 
What else do religions, religious communities do around the world? They mobilize people. What else? Pardon me? I'm sorry. Holds them. It, 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 is, it is their marker of identity. It holds them. Also, as one, I, it, yes. Right. And the pessimist in me says they also don't want to have the religious ethical <coughs> guidelines um, not be aligned with their own monetary strategies that they have, which might not necessarily have the ethical ideals of the religions. And so it's, it's I'm not saying it's all, but the same way Constantine kind of you know wanted to include all the bishops in his imperial <laughs> strategy. Yeah. Right. They're not being opposed by the religions. So I yeah. would like to think idealistically, oh, they want to do well, the most good. That sounds cynical to me. <laughs> idealistic. These World Bank people really don't care about it. They just don't want problems. But no, that's that's a good point. You, sir, you wanted to say something. Then we... Way that one, that I think that's something I want to hone in on, that, that response. Um, there was a much to do in this discussion and in the literature that's emerging from, from people beyond those who study religion on this point, that um, religious communities, first of all, they don't leave when the, when the tsunami comes or the conflict comes, right? They're locally rooted. They're there long term. They're, they're trusted, unlike many government officials. They're generally still, despite various crises and scandals around the world, they're still largely trusted because they stay, right? So they are reliable anchors of the community and interlocutors, and they, and they reflect the social values, including compassion, concern for the poor. So I asked at one point, so what's really the distinctive thing that religions bring that these other organizations that do good work don't bring? And uh, an Anglican priest uh, said, uh, how did she put it? She said, uh, we are the poor. We are the poor, right? which is the best answer I heard. You know, that they're not people who are kind of parachuting in or an agency that many of these religious actors are among the poor and live among as the poor. So they, they also give credible evidence, testimony, and, and so on. Now, what's the challenge of, uh, if, you're, if you're working in one of these development organizations, what is the, the challenge if, let's say, you know that the health care that's delivered in the, um, in the Eastern Congo is delivered by Catholic nuns. And so Sister Beatrice is there, and she's in, in her uh, little Catholic hospital. What's the challenge of working with Sister Beatrice on health care delivery? Yes. You ruined her credibility. That's really important. That was my intervention. You got, or Sister Beatrice gets targeted. Or if it's Imam so-and-so or a Muslim community that's working with the World Bank or whatever, 
you just put a big bullseye on the back. So that's those are kind of complementary problems. Another yes. Religion is based on um, traditional healers. So you see on TV, for those who have TV, there are <coughs> things like hair lips are not produced by witches. There's a genetic disorder. Or the kids I was teaching in Zambia. Miss Betsy, when the dogs start, stop barking at night, it's it's because a witch passed by. Right, right. So and and this, I mean, I just came back from living in Zambia. <coughs> this is today in Zambia. Right. Let me. That's that's a very important point. I'm going to make it a little uh, just simplified in this way. Sister Beatrice. W uh, in addition to your point, this is uh, a slightly different point, but it amplifies, I think, what you're saying. Sister Beatrice believes that a significant, important portion of her healthcare services is not trying to cure the person of a deadly disease, but accompanying them to death, being with them, being a presence, being an accompanier. And the World Bank doesn't have a metric for that. Furthermore, Sister Beatrice doesn't know what a metric is or doesn't care. And if you've ever worked with any kind of bureaucracy or <laughs> in the 21st century, and you don't know how to fill in a log frame or, a, you know, or how to count and how to do quantitative, Sister Beatrice kind of says, Que pasa, or whatever the corollary would be. You know, I, what's happening here? I don't, I don't, we don't, that's not what. So when I talked earlier, mentioned earlier that what does it say, the human dignity and taking the priority of the individual and of the culture seriously? This is, this is a challenge. It is a challenge if, you're, if your approach, and, and that has results. You know, you scale up, you, you put bed nets, and you scale them up, and kids don't get malaria anymore, right? You find ways to get that, those vaccines and you avoid deadly diseases and infant mortality, it becomes less of a challenge, et cetera. I mean, these are things that work and you want to partner with religious actors who are local, who understand for, for the reasons, you know, kind of the reasons I'm suggesting. And then you've got, well, you've got witchcraft over here and you've got people who don't want to fill in the forms over here and, you, and yet you know you need them. Okay, so there's, the importance of elicitive and local actors and the challenge of them, right? And one of the, one of the uh, challenges within the challenges, as you know, many of these communities are multi-layered. They are local, but they're also regional or transnational. Is that a way to engage a kind of a translating or a bridging, you know, between uh, uh, Mother Superior, who's located somewhere else, but says we really need to work together with the Red Cross on this issue, and how do we do it? Okay, so in the sense of development, 
it's recognized increasingly that religious actors are indispensable for all of the reasons you've mentioned that we've discussed. But the challenges are also how to transcend the local for projects that are scalable and culturally acceptable and absolutely necessary to fight disease, to develop societies, to eradicate or work on eradicating poverty. That's one set of challenges. If we talk about peace building, and then I'm coming to my concluding section. If we talk about peace building, which is a little more literature on religion and peace building, and more thought has been given to it, frankly, within religious communities and beyond. So we can make this a little quicker and easier. What are the advantages of engaging religious actors in peace building efforts that are, I think, now pretty widely recognized? And what would the challenges be? Some of the, just to move us along, some of, the challenge, some of the advantages are quite similar to the ones we mentioned about engaging religious actors in development. Uh, they are local, they are enduring, they have local knowledge, uh, the, the solutions are going to affect their communities, they are widely trusted, they are mediators. What's a big disadvantage of working with religious leaders in conflict mediation or in peace building? If you could name just one, what do you think? It's a little bit similar to the one in development, but what are religious leaders, I'm sure none of the ones who are here who are religious leaders are guilty of this, but what are religious leaders around the world ironically guilty of? Yes. Ego, as are we all, the human condition. How would you nuance that a little bit? Ego in what sense? Right, right. There, let me use this term to, to turf protectors par excellence, right? Not every religious leader, but you know, you're, uh, you are, you're a religious leader because you're developing a community, a congregation, and this is your turf, this is your bailiwick, and if another religious community or even an intra-religious or another religious and ethnic community is in conflict with you, you, know, you are going to protect that turf. See the Bosnian situation, the Herzegovina, the, that, that war in which... It was not a pretty picture with some of the religious leaders. You know, I was told, just parenthetically, I'm coming to the conclusion that the Franciscans, during the, the uh, Bosnian War of 9295, that the, um, the, the, lo the uh, local priest, the local uh, priest fled during the war, but the local Franciscans stayed, that is the diocesans fled, but the local Franciscans stayed, took over the parishes. These are the Franciscans. Francis of Assisi, nonviolence. Pope John Paul II, they, and then when, the, when they came back after the war, the diocesans to come back to their parishes and take over control of their parishes. The, um, uh, the Franciscans wouldn't let them back into the parishes. They said, you left when we were here. We're keeping these parishes, and they're devoted to Our Lady of Medjugorje, and they're this and that and the other thing, and this is what we think about the Serbs, and this is what we think. And so John Paul II had to send a papal ambassador to these Franciscans to say, you're violating canon law, you have to give the parishes back to the local priest. Now, I've heard this, the following, the punchline from four or five different, uh, two bishops and two priests, so as credible as that is, the, the Franciscans escorted this papal ambassador to the border and said, if you come back again, we'll have you killed. <laughs> So let's not, we don't need to talk about inter-religious conflict. 
I think those are all Catholics. But when but turf protection can be uh, be a real problem. But because remember, after all, religious leaders are trained and educated and and de devoted to nurturing their own particular congregation, their sets of beliefs. They're, I, I uh, was once asked to do a series of workshops for African Catholic bishops who were coming to Baltimore for workshops on peace building, including Burundians who are in the peace process. And I naively thought, this was some years ago, I thought, well, this should be easy. You're Catholic bishops. You follow the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. You, you're going to be ready to be mediators and conflict transformative agents and blah, blah, blah. Of course not. What was I thinking? I mean, one of them finally said, I said, how many of you are peace builders by vocation? I got the same looks you're giving me now. None of them raised their hands. They said, what? well, wait a second. Christ, gospel, blah. And one of them finally kind of in a disgust with me, raised his hand and said something effective. We are, we are pastors. We went to the seminary. We do liturgy. We do this. We do that. We do that. We weren't trained to be peace builders. Not the way you're saying. And, of course, that was correct. So engaging religious actors in peace building, lay religious clergy, is in a sense a natural thing to do because they are, again, local at the heart of conflict. They have resources and symbols and rituals that are incredibly transformative, potentially and actually. You mean the vocabulary and the, the kind of cultural instruments that religious have at their disposals to touch people's souls and hearts and motivate them are unbelievable, as you know. Compare it, and there are secular concomitants of these or mirrors of them, but they're very powerful, locally rooted resources and symbols. That's why I was expecting these African bishops to say, yes, of course, we have all these symbols and resources to love the enemy. But then the challenge is, again, that the religious are not just sitting there ready. Well, we've been waiting for you to come to us, you know, Alliance for Peace. We've been waiting for the World Bank to come. Now we're ready. It's not that situation. Okay. Believe it or not, the conclusion and it will, is to finish this up, looking at the challenges of integral human development as a frame for engaging religious actors in peace building and development. Now, what does John Paul Lederach's moral imagination have to do to help address, to help address this dilemma, this challenge? Is there a way that his, his uh, writing about the moral imagination, that term has been used by other, others as well, um, including secular cultural critic, but for, for Lederach, some of you I know know Lederach's work, that's why I'm, I'm calling you. What, first of all, what do you take Lederach's approach to be more generally? I've mentioned the elicitive method, those of you who don't know John Paul Lederach, he's a Mennonite in his faith tradition. He is a world-renowned mediator and peace builder who works out of, without explicitly often mentioning his faith or his commitments, is very deeply rooted in spiritual and religious traditions and has developed many key concepts in mediation, conflict transformation, including the term, helped develop the term conflict transformation. Among other things, he says, you know, this work of actually building peace only begins maybe with a peace accord, or a peace accord is one, one moment in a longer process. And John Paul likes to lift out one hand and say, if the conflict took this long to unfold, decades, 
Do you think the solution is going to be like this? No. You have to build over generations, rebuild trust. There can be incremental uh, gains along the way, but it's not just about resolving conflict because often what you're resolving are the symptoms of conflict, this land dispute, that oil problem, this cultural. You're resolving the symptoms but not the disease. And the disease is, requires transformation, real healing, restoration, long-term work, even while the resolution and the mediation goes on, those are important parallel lines. So that, that's kind of his, and he's also well-known for his kind of pyramid where you work from the middle in. If you're in a society, there are elites, there's grassroots, and then there's the middle, the mayors, the local priests, the educators who are not just living in the grassroots, and they're certainly not elites, they're not they're not uh, the bishop or the, or the governor or the head of the state, so you work from the middle out. In fact, we were able to lure John Paul to Notre Dame because at that time he had a little Catholic envy because he saw that the Catholic Church was a present around the world at all these levels. You know, the priest, the bishop, and then the, or, or the archbishop and the, the papacy and the Vatican and then the local priests and so forth. And we were glad that we didn't tell him that those levels don't agree with one another and fight a lot. He knows that now. So what about the moral imagination? What about the moral, what is, what is his thought on this? Now, a number of you have told me you know Letterox, so I'm gonna start naming names here pretty soon. Anyone know what that, that is? Well, let me conclude by saying a few things about that and then we'll open it up. I'm sorry I've gone on so long. The, um, the Moral Imagination is a book John Paul wrote in what we call his kind of middle period about 10 years ago, I think, maybe a little longer, after he had done a lot of writing on the kind of architectonics and technical aspects of mediation along the ways I've suggested very briefly. And he was a colleague of mine at that point. I was the director of the institute he worked for with. And he wrote this book called The Moral Imagination. And on the cover is a work of art and the book talks about spider webs, and it talks about uh, um, serendipity, uh, be, be aware of the serendipitous, things that kind of occur out of the corner that are not planned that you gotta listen for, and uses haikus, and he was having our students meet, er who would want to, and they all did, meet early in the morning before classes start to write their haikus of the day. So I took him aside and said, when you get over this midlife crisis thing, <laughs> And you're finished with the, the, the spider webs and the haiku business. You've got to get back to the technical aspects of peace building. And, and being John Paul, he was very gentle with me and kind of smiled and nodded, didn't say anything. And then I was asked for some reason to lead a, a retreat at Mary Knoll in New York of about 45 nuns who were coming from all over the world who had been teaching in Peru on a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in this country, who had been working with the poor, who had been in conflict settings. And I thought, well, I, I guess I should get to know this moral imagination book. And I assigned it to them. And of course, you learn a book by teaching it. They all came together, these senior women who had been in the trenches of peace building and development and poverty reduction and education around the world, all over the world. Within like two days, they got it. And they started teaching me, of course he's right about this. Of course, don't you get this? Don't you understand this is the art and soul of peace building? Which is the subtitle. And they ex explained it to me. I went back and said, Master, I am sorry. <laughs> please, please forgive me. 
So briefly, the insight, or among the insights of the moral imagination, let me, um, let me just summarize them for you very briefly, and then we'll go to questions, because uh, I, can, I can ad lib it, but I think, to be fair to John Paul, I shouldn't try to do that. Pardon me? I'll imagine what he said. Here we go. Let's do, we do this quickly. So, Lederach describes the moral imagination as the capacity to recognize turning points and possibilities in a conflict situation in order to venture down unknown paths and create what does not yet exist. In reference to peace building, the moral imagination is the capacity to imagine and generate constructive processes that are rooted in the day-to-day -day challenges of violence and yet somehow transcend these destructive patterns. And he has a little bit about how religious actors in particular can be poised to do this. In Lederach's view, the moments of possibility that pave the way for constructive change processes do not emerge through the road application of a set of techniques or strategies but rather arise out of something that appro approximates an artistic process. Lederach maintains that the art and soul of social change should inform peace-building efforts. So a lot of the focus is how do people change? How do societies change? What constitutes, what is your theory of change, social change? The goal of transcending violence is advanced by the capacity to generate, mobilize, and build the moral imagination in a community, to build upon that moral imagination. This faculty rests on four capacities. Number one, moral imagination requires the capacity to imagine ourselves in a web of relationships. That is, to imagine what is in fact the case. To think and to imagine that web of relationship which includes people in the society who are our enemies or potential enemies. What kind of relationships can we imagine that are part of our regular life, daily lives? Number two, it requires the ability to embrace complexity without being caught in social schism. So there is, how do we get to the level beneath the social divisions and imagine a complexity of motives and of conditions that are lying beneath the surface. Number three, it requires a commitment to be creative and take risks, a creative act. Number three is a creative act. It requires an acceptance, number four, of the risk that goes along with attempts to transcend violence. So it's no formula, but it's a kind of way of being as a peace builder that calls people to imagine their situations, their enemies, their friends in a network of relationships. And that's why the spiderweb motif is very important because of the resilience of the spiderweb even when it's shattered because it's anchored in a certain way and it builds a set of relationships. So the key elements um, or the disciplines, the peace building disciplines, that one could argue are also religious or spiritual disciplines are, are the following, these four, and we'll be finished. Um, relationships, paradoxical curiosity, creativity, and risk. Number one, the centrality of relationships. This forms the context in which violence occurs and also generates the energy that enables people to transcend the violence as people acknowledge their, their relational interdependency and recognize themselves as part of the pattern of the violence, 
they may be able to envision a wider set of relationships and take personal responsibility for their own choices and behavior. In short, religious peace building requires people to envision their interconnectedness and equality and mutuality. I participated in a uh, meeting of religious uh, perpetrators of violence, religious extremists in Washington in the 1990s. Doug Johnston at the Center for um, Diplomacy and Religion was starting up, it went into the 2000s. And we brought, the, he brought uh, interlocutors from Hamas, uh, Sri Lankan Buddhist nationalist, um, Serbian uh, Orthodox priest and militants. We had sessions like this uh, with one group, not with two groups. And what was striking about interacting with these activists that would be called religious extremists or fundamentalists who were there for a weekend, fully paid, coming, they were there with their propaganda, was this challenge. Not seeing themselves in the situation, but always the victim of the situation. It just was remarkably striking how vehement they were. All of them, all of them, the victim mentality and no sense of their own agency. So the Serbs, who had just been through this brutal war in which there was Serb aggression, certainly, not alone, we tried to push them a little bit politely and then not so politely, what, but what about the Serbs did this, that, and bombed this, and tortured this? No, they wouldn't even hear that. It was, here's what the Croatians have did to us in World War II. Here's this, here's that. The, the, I have to say the most harrowing encounter was with Sri Lankan Buddhists who brought pictures of Tamil torturing and they were completely unrelenting and unforgiving and could not see any of the government of the Sinhala you know, element in the violence. Could, just couldn't see it. It was really seeing them, you know, like once every 10 days having these sessions was was overwhelming, it was very saddening, very depressing. I'm sure I'd do the same thing in that situation. But this, what John Paul is trying to get at with this relationship building, it's more complex than a little blurb can tell you, but it's an attempt to say, how do religious and spiritual traditions and moral imagination more broadly, how do you get at that problem that you don't see the humanity of the other, you don't see that the, the other you're in a relationship to, even if it's characterized by a negative history and a brutal, brutal, bloody history that you're living cheek by jowl in the same region and you're in a relationship. What does relationship mean in that context? How do we try to reimagine that? And this is risky because it, le it can lead to retaliation, more violence. The second thing is the, prior the practice of paradoxical curiosity. Cycles of violence and poverty are driven by polarities. If you try to respond to poverty, to violence, in an either or categories, you're either with us or against us, or it's this situation, this approach, it's the secular development approach or the elicitive method, one or the other, you're going to fail. This is prediction. That's ultimately going to be frustrated. You have to somehow resolve the paradox or be curious about the paradox. You have to get at it, not let it govern you. Moral imagination involves the capacity to rise above these divisions and reach beyond accepted meanings Paradoxical curiosity is a matter of respecting complexity, seeking something beyond what is immediately apparent, and discovering what it is that holds apparently opposed social energies together. It involves accepting people at face value, and yet looking beyond appearances and suspending judgment in order to discover untold new angles, opportunities, 
and unexpected potentialities. The religious resources for reconciliation and forgiveness speak to this or could speak to this need to suspend judgment in order to discover new angles, opportunities, and ways of looking at the other person. Third, provide space somehow in the setting. And again, his method is you don't parachute in and parachute out. You're an abiding presence in the community. Right? You're, you're there in the conflict setting for a while and you're trusted. Provide space in these settings for cr the creative act. The moral imagination arises through creative human action of, every, of the everyday and yet, and yet moves beyond what exists to something new and unexpected. Because new ways of thinking may pose a threat to the status quo, it's important to provide space for the creative act to emerge. This requires a commitment to creativity and a belief that it is possible to move beyond the parameters of what is commonly accepted. You have to kind of take a leap of faith that this is possible. This quality of providing for and expecting the unexpected is well known in the world of artists and needs to be cultivated in the world of peace builders. Creativity opens us to avenues of inquiry and provides us with new ways to think about social change. And finally, the willingness to risk. All of this is a risk on so many levels as you can imagine. It can be seen as idealistic, as unrealistic, and done poorly without really internalizing the approach, it can backfire. So to take a risk is to step into this unknown without any guarantee of success or safety at the end. Um, for many people caught in conflict, violence is known and peace is a mystery because peace building typically requires people to move toward a new, mysterious, unexpected future. It is a difficult journey. I'll conclude this and this presentation by saying, uh, that my good friend John Paul, this is a story he wouldn't want me to tell, but don't tell him I told you. Um, I mean, this is someone who has tried in his life to enact these things in his own practice. And I, I, uh, I was very impressed by a story that someone in his family told me that he would not have told me himself about um, a time when he was in Barcelona. And... Um, he was in the market and he felt a knife in his side. Someone who was robbing him. He wasn't pierced, but someone stuck a knife in his rib and, uh, and said, give me everything you got. And the next night, John Paul was dining with that person um, and they're still friends. Now, that sounds a little bit like Jesus, so I, 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 you know, I hesitate to tell it, but you, you need a moral imagination to get beyond the knife in your ribs and to somehow invite the person to dinner. And um, that, that kind of approach, I think there's something I'm just leaving things for, I hope you can think about, of how we, how we try to bridge religious agency in terms of both development and in peace building in ways that draw upon some of these ideas about creativity, imagining the, the point about turf protecting requires a moral imagination that recognizes that you're in relationship to the other, even as a religious leader and a religious actor. I know many of you are MDiv or Master of Theological Studies, some of you in this, and you'll be working with folks in this context. And that's the real challenge, to, to get the religious actors to imagine themselves as part of this larger network and to take the risk that that entails to do so. Um, I've gone 10 minutes more than you gave me limit to, so I apologize, and I'm happy to, to discuss and listen to all of you.
Okay, Scott, thanks so much. Um, so I, I was going to begin by posing some dazzling questions, but in the interest of time, I'm going to go straight to this phase of, um, of our discussion um, where the RPP working group will engage um, Dr. Appleby in a period of conversation for about 20 minutes, and then we can move on to the, the, the wider audience. So I'd like to begin uh, this <clears throat> part of the proceeding by inviting our graduate students to kick off um, uh, the conversation with a few questions. So I think we have um, um, uh, some students who have questions prepared. If you wouldn't mind just standing up and using the microphone, go okay. for it. Hi, I'm Ashlyn Rickard. I'm, I'm in the working group. I'm an MTS um, first-year student at the Divinity School. Um, so my question was in relation um, to your conversation about the religion, community, um, development, and peace workers working together. Um, so what are some of the current successes that you've seen in your research um, of all three collaborating together? And um, with the difficulties, how do you overcome these in general? How do you overcome the difficulties, the difficulties. Um, of just working together collaboration? And you're asking specifically about collaboration between peace builders and development workers? Correct. Um, I hope I didn't claim very much for that because I, I, I'll have to think for a moment about the collaboration um, between peace builders and development workers as such, but I'll, I'll give you some examples of it. The, um, I want to, the focus to be the collaboration on, between religious actors and development actors on one hand, religious actors and peace builders on the other, so I'll say a little bit about that. Um, you, you made reference, uh, so let me take these one at a one at a time, okay? So collaboration between religious actors and peace builders, or religious actors who themselves evolve into peace builders, and then the peace building world takes note and lifts them up. Uh, just generally speaking, uh, well, uh, the one I wanted to mention, mention, you had the imam and the pastor here, and I think you all went, I mean, that's a widely cited example of crossing these religious lines, and that that has been widely studied there is, you may know, if you don't, you folks in this group should definitely Google the Tannenbaum Center. You all familiar with the Tannenbaum Center? Just a show of hands for interreligious, uh, um, I'm on the board, interreligious, religious peace building or something. I'm sorry, I'm on the board. I, I get, but it's the Tannenbaum Center. Joyce Dubinsky is the leader of it. And they have produced two volumes. One, the first, edited by David Little of Harvard, that have about 15 examples in that book of successful, there's one from Bosnia-Herzegovina of a Franciscan, I, I gave the Franciscans bad publicity earlier, but of uh, Ivo Markovic, friar, who in fact challenged um, his community because of their turf protecting and reached out to Muslims and to um, uh, Serbian Orthodox and developed, uh, worked also to develop an interreligious council um, that Bill Venley and the Religions for Peace organization. So he, he's profiled there, the imam and the pastor. In that first book of the Tannenbaum Center, edited by David Litter, I'm sorry, little, I don't, I don't remember the title of it, but you'll see about a dozen case studies there. Peacemakers in Action, thank you very much. There is a second volume coming out um, in the next few months 
that extends those cases to Afghanistan and Pakistan and other parts of the world. So you'll have another dozen, including, and I don't want to take too much time on this, including uh, Jamila Afghani, who is a woman working in Afghanistan at incredible risk. And she does Quranic instruction, which having a woman doing Quranic instruction in Afghanistan is talk about risk and moral imagination and has developed a method for doing that with within that, so it's an intra-religious uh, challenge. So anyway, there are, to move along, there are, there are at least uh, two dozen of these cases in those two books, the, the David Little volume and the volume that's coming out this year. Uh, and you might want to kind of, for that is, those are examples of religious actors who've gotten involved in peace building, and there are also essays in this fourth book by professional peace builders who are, who are partnering with these religious actors. So there's a lot of cases there. Um, what's less, um, less empirically recorded is peace builders working with development agents as such. What I know best are the, the situation of some of our students from the Kroc Institute who have worked in de with development agencies and organizations from a peace building lens. And their stories, their testimonies of working are that it's now more the case than it used to be that this type of question would be asked by development officials, partly because this is a little bit in the chapter that, um, that was referred to earlier about religion development. Where do you put this health clinic that the Red Cross or the World Bank, where in the, where in the region or in the community do you put that health clinic? And the development folks would have certain metrics or certain means of evaluating, well, where's the water supply, where's this, where's that? The peace builders come in and say, if you put it close to this tribe's center of, do you understand that what the underlying dynamics are for a decision that you think is neutral or that is technically uh, not neutral, but neutral socially and culturally? And so I wish I could give you a case study of that, and if, uh, if uh, I'll, I'll try to think of one, because I've read, I've read case studies of this, and it might as well, it may as much be reports from students. But that's the kind of interaction where the peace builders bring a sensibility about the local dynamics and cultural dynamics that development actors themselves are a little bit more aware of now when they make a decision like where you put the health clinic. Or do you know that this river that you're about to use for irrigation purposes is considered to be a spirit by this group, you know, and that you don't just go in there with your, your implements and not realize that's a sacred river? So, so it's kind of the cultural, religious, peace-building analysis that, that development practitioners are more open to. Sorry for that long answer, but there's more to it than that. Can I ask you just a little follow-up on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. um, uh, something you did mention a bit in the chapter and, and didn't mention tonight is uh, this connection between religion and development um, uh, around the, the big religious relief agencies, you know, Catholic Relief Services, Islamic Relief, or World Vision, or World Relief, and so on. I mean, what, how do you see the good, the bad, and the ugly of that? I mean, are, are these... Uh, um, I, 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 uh, angelic organizations doing good things and, 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 and moving back from earlier proselytism and, and, and you know, so how do you read all of that? Are these people who are um, on the side of the angels of religion 
uh, um, development and peace building, or, or do they have significant blind spots that, that, that are not working well? Or? Thanks for that question. It is a big part of this story that I completely omitted tonight. You know, you have local religious communities or trans-local religious communities with headquarters in various parts of the world, so Catholic and Buddhist and Muslim, whatever they may be. And, um, and then you have um, these faith-based NGOs that are um, faith-based organizations. So let me take two of them for this question. There, uh, Islamic Relief would be a third example, but let me take the ones I know a little bit better. I know Catholic Relief Service is the best. I knew World Vision some years ago when I was writing the ambivalence book and I interviewed and talked with those folks. So here's the, the negative. Of, uh, so these are organizations that, and they vary, even generalizing between those two is a mistake because they're very different. But generally speaking, we're talking about major relief and development organizations, or for that matter, peace-building organizations that are faith-based, that have some kind of commitment to a religious, usually a distinctive Roman Catholicism, in, the, in that case of Catholic Relief Services, which was um, actually founded in the United States and first funded by the U.S. government and still takes a lot of its money from the U.S. government. Certainly the Caritas Internationalis is the more worldwide and it's locally funded by various state governments and other private donors. And these are organizations that are intended to reflect the basic social values and religious teachings as they're translated into social practices of that host religious body. The, the people who work within these organizations, in the case of Catholic Relief Services, the majority are not Roman Catholic. In India, the majority are Hindus. In many of the places of, of staffers, I mean people working in the organization. Um, it, it, World Visions is different, and World Vision has evolved, but World Vision is still, I think, has been mostly more of a kind of titan, uh, titan evangelical Christian, Christian-dominated staff. The challenge that World Vision faced in its critique, and it's not World Vision alone, is what you've referred to, that are these really development and poverty reduction agencies full stop, or are they means to evangelize? And the Catholic Church also went through its period of mission work in which, you know, so both of these major Christian traditions, Catholic and Evangelical Christian, um, have in the past had episodes where they have been accused of, and maybe with some merit, that they tie relief, poverty reduction, provision of food, other kind of security and shelters to a proselytism of a sort. Um, only communities with these churches are going to get this rice that we have. We don't have enough for everybody. We're going to make judgments that way. And, and Catholicism has evolved in that way. And I believe more recently, although I'm not as well, that World Vision has tried to address that criticism. So that would be one criticism, that development, poverty reduction, et cetera, health is a cover, so to speak, for proselytism. Now, I should say very quickly, it's a big, good, important question. This is a real challenge because what I mentioned the Marian Old Sisters I did the retreat with, they are witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a way, they're witnesses to the Catholic Church, they're nuns. They would tell you they never, ever proselytize. And I think they're probably, they're probably right. But they also have people come to them and want to be like them, and they, and they have a welcoming invitation, so they're certainly going to, if you come and ask. But it's, it is a fine line. It's a complicated relationship um, because these sisters, however progressive they are, they're still Catholic nuns who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, even though that sounds like an evangelical formulation, but they would certainly say that. 
And so it's a complicated terrain for faith-based organizations. The literature on this suggests that. The other, the other thing I'll say, the other only thing to say is that the relationship between these major develop, faith-based development organizations and the people on the ground also varies. That is to say, the local actors. When I'm talking about the illicit method, working with the local actors, well, it's complicated, even in the way it's structured. Again, I know Catholic Relief Services best. Catholic Relief Services works with local partners. Okay, so they give their grants to the Muslim or, or Buddhist or Hindu or maybe not particularly religious or not identifiably religious, local actors who are gonna implement those projects. The relationship between, in the Catholic Relief, so there's, there's headquarters who are a certain kind of profile who work in headquarters both internationally and nationally. Certain staffers, these are professional development people. And for Catholic Relief Services, most of them graduated from here and they were Unitarian Universalists, various kinds of Protestants, they weren't Catholic, but they went to a very professional development organization and the church got criticized partly for bringing so many people on who were just professional development experts. When are you gonna, when are you gonna bring someone who really, well, these people tended to you know, internalize the ethos of Catholic Relief, not in every regard of the Catholic Church, but they tended to be very good um, agents and representatives. This is the home base I'm talking about. So that's a complicated story too. What is their relationship to the faith? Many of them are not Catholic. Many of them inculcate the social tradition and really believe in it and can articulate it better than many Catholics in some cases. So that's a complicated group. Then in the local, uh, in Delhi, you have maybe a Hindu as the country staffer running that India, for, and, and he or she has a particular relationship to the culture, but he or she is gonna work with locals in the rural areas outside Delhi who are a completely different public altogether. So it's, it's not like a Catholic is going into and, and working directly in every case with the local actor, but there's kind of a chain. I think World Vision is a little bit different there, but, but that's another issue just to highlight how they're, how they're, and then the other quite, the final question on this, and I just, again, I'm gonna use Catholic Relief Services, but I'm sure it's true of World Vision and other faith-based organizations. When you're working in development or in peace building, you're working out in the world in social justice, let's call it. Uh, you're not working in a seminary. You're not working in a parish. You're not working in the bishop's office. This is by way of saying the world's more complicated, more plural, and the people who are working in it also have different ideas and about human dignity. And so, without going into it, reproductive rights, or whatever term one wants to use for this whole set of uh, uh, sexual ethics, whatever you want to call that. Well, I think it's not, it wouldn't be scandalous to suggest in an organization like Catholic Relief Services, which comes from folks from MIT, Harvard, Stanford, wherever they're trained, as well as some people who may have been trained in Catholic education, there's a variety of attitudes toward what is the best way to preserve women's health or to empower women or to regulate birth or whatever. So that's an internally complex, or take a different issue. That's the hot button issue. Take other kinds of issues that the doctrinal teachings of the faith or the practices of the faith would enjoin and yet you're working in a, at a, not a remove, I wouldn't say, but you're working in a different sector and the calculations become dif difficult. 
I happen to know, I guess I'll turn off the YouTube, but it, uh, I know that the, that the president of, uh, uh, CEO of Catholic Relief Services gets criticized every day by Catholics, uh, and she's done the best she can to overcome this, that she's criticized for working with Group X who provides this for, you can't win. Uh, now, Catholic Relief Services, I should say, follows Catholic doctrine in each of these respects. That, that I'm not saying that the policies of the organization veer at all from Catholic doctrine on these questions. They do not. But it's a complicated navigation, so it's a long answer, but it's a, it's a very important, it, because what you have in the faith-based organizations and the, it's, it's, is kind of the bridge between, the, in a way, theoretically at least, the local communities and the broader development world. I mean, Catholic Relief Services is playing with World Bank and IMF and Red Cross and Islamic Relief, of course, but with, with the whole panoply, that's, those are their peers. So you've got a very complicated, interesting world out there in which there's negotiations and navigations every day around trying to serve people with the integrity of the faith intact and also respecting a range of perspectives and views and life settings. So it's, it's complicated business and it requires real thoughtful leadership. Great, we have another question from one of our graduate students. And then we'll open it right up to the, yeah. Hi, I'm Melissa, I'm part of the working group and I have a question about the moral imagination. Um, so you talked about at the end, you talked about how wonderful it can be when people agree to do it, but how risky it can be. So would you just give us an idea of how it is actually currently being used, and if so, how they're convincing people to enjoin into this great risk? Yep. Um, well, I can, let me give you an example from Mindanao in the Philippines, and, and both kind of the good news, bad news. Okay, the good news and challenging news. Uh, John, I, I uh, of the various places and conflict zones around the world, the one I've spent most time in recent, most recently is in Mindanao, which is the second longest shooting conflict in the world, um, Catholics versus Muslims, Bangsamoro ethnic. And, um, and I and, and another, others of us from CROC and Peacebuilding, what, John Paul himself went to one set of workshops there. There have been years of workshops with local Catholics and Muslims, in which the moral imagination, what we're calling the moral imagination is at the center of that. And there's been great, I think, great success in building um, certainly a Catholic community um, which is on, uh, on alert all the time, that feels himself under siege, under risk from Muslim militants. There's a priest there who puts, when he says mass, puts a revolver on the altar as his way of saying, if anyone tries to kidnap any of us Catholics, this is the response. That's not very helpful for the peace, peace builders. The clergy, the, the sisters, by the way, are much more amenable to this approach, the peace building, moral imagination. The clergy in that setting happens to be very tough because remember, they're not coming out of a peace building tradition, they're coming out of I'm protecting my flock and so that's the most dramatic example of putting a, a, a gun on the altar while you're saying mass. But they were really tough. Nonetheless, over several years, that Catholic community developed a core in about eight different barangay, eight different villages, essentially, of local peace builders who are infused with this notion that the Muslim community, the other, is, um, is part, they're in relationship to them. They're, they're, they're living side by side with them, they're, et cetera, and, and really made real progress. 
there were indeed some Muslims who were joining this as well, joining this community of moral imagination peace builders, let's call them. The challenge became when the extremists had real penetration into the Muslim community in particular. There were Catholic extremists too, as I mentioned, and started threatening the women and children, particularly of the families who would be involved in the, in the dialogue uh, around moral imagination, what we're calling moral imagination, it's not what it was called, but it was informed by that. So that was one problem. The other problem was that, um, well, just on that problem, I, w I addressed a room about twice his size filled with these Catholic peace builders, the moral imagination on one occasion I'll never forget. And there are some bishops there, and I was quoting John Paul II. I, I had him on the screen, and I even got down on my knees at one point to be dramatic, because he says at the beginning of his pontificate and throughout it, but I used the one at the beginning in Ireland, he said, no more, no more violence, nonviolence, nonviolence, no just war. I mean, it's really striking. You know, Catholic is just war tradition. And this pope went around, he didn't get a lot of coverage on it. He, was, he said, I'm on my knees begging you do not do violence to your enemies. It only backfires. It was completely, un I mean, I don't say a nuance negatively. It was unambiguous, unambiguous. And I read about three of these quotes. Now, I'm, I'm also, by the way, sitting there thinking, who the hell am I to be telling these people who are being kidnapped and being at gunpoint, et cetera, not to use violence, defensive violence? So I'm just quoting the Pope, thinking, okay. And the bishop, after I was finished, the bishop got up, a very kind man, very kind, said, do you really want us to practice nonviolence in these settings? Can we really do that? How can we imagine our way into that when we're being... And, and I talked to him, and then I was done in by the senior woman in the room, who was wonderful, a nun who had, the senior nun in the room, who stood up and said, here is our challenge. We take, we go with the Muslims to market, we do this, we do that, and then um, they betray us. They tell the extremists where we are, or they, 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 publicly they'll do this with us. And she said, so I don't know how to respond to that. And so we, we then talked about it, and we said, why do they do that? Are they duplicitous? And we started talking about the fact that they're under threat that their families are being threatened. Okay, sorry for the long anecdote. But that, so that's moral imagination, but it's difficult and it's a risk. The other challenge and disappointing news about that is, so the progress that is made by these communities toward the moral imagination, including the Muslims in that, the Muslims and Catholics involved, is at the local level with people who are in the middle of the conflict and who are vulnerable and are trying to live together in peace, and people at a higher level, government or military, can wipe away what they're doing like that. And so what they're trying to do now, Catholic Relief Services is giving them little grants to do this, is political mobilization in the barangays to try to have a political voice with their leaders. In Manila, they don't even know they're there. But the local Zamboanga city, the Manila, giving them some kind of political voice. And that's very difficult. So it, it's... It's long-term, it's risk-taking. The final thing to say about this, sorry to go on so long. One thing I learned from these sisters who read The Moral Imagination and got it, which seems obvious now that I recognize it, and I was directing a peace institute for many years and didn't understand this. 
I thought that peace meant you solve the conflict, you sign the peace accord, and you, and you return to normalcy or move toward prosperity. And of course, that's kind of the... But what that book, The Moral Imagination, talks about is building platforms and webs. And they're talking about the larger situation is going to be chaotic. It's going to be violent in many of these senses. I mean, you may wane and wax. And in some cases, Northern Ireland being one, which is always the poster child for a relatively successful peace process, even though there's still challenges and problems. And even in Northern Ireland, which is by far, relatively speaking, much more civil and absent of violence, still even there it's always shaky to some degree. And, um, but certainly in these, in these shooting wars that are still going on, you build peace within that context. What does that mean? You build platforms, networks, relationships that try to both move peace in the political sense, peace process forward incrementally or whatever way, but you're also building communities in Mindanao, they call them zones of peace. They actually have communities that all the combatants who are the sons of the mothers, right? And the mothers have said, you will not bring a gun into this region. And they're actually apparently respected. So there's little, how do you build platforms that can become the web anchors of peace and rebuild these relationships over time. That's different than saying, we're gonna stop this conflict and, and have a capital P peace coming. Instead, you're building platforms, webs, networks that may not survive in, in quite the same form, but become beacons you know, in the darkness and maybe eventually the seeds. I said this would be a final thing because we're talking about Northern Ireland. I promise I'll shut up with this. I was in Belfast for the ambivalence book. First time I'd been in Belfast, and the only part I'll tell you is when I first got to Belfast, never having been in Northern Ireland at that time, I couldn't tell the Catholics and Protestants apart right away. I mean, they look alike. They both have an accent I don't understand, <laughs> et cetera. And, and then, then, yeah, I started to pick up that the Protestants would say, um, this is Northern Ireland, and the Catholics would say, this is the north of Ireland. Things like that. And after being there a couple of weeks, I, uh, and what I was going there to try to understand is um, how do you prove a negative? In other words, I was trying to argue that, look, Corimila and all the, 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 what I call in the book, the saturation model, where there are peace builders on every corner. <laughs> but Northern Ireland has its fair share you know, of long-term community organizations like Corimila that are trying to build relationships, moral imagination, between Catholics and Protestants, like Cory Mila, and there are many others. And, um, and yet people who are skeptics would say, but there are still 3,700 3, deaths in the Troubles, so much for your peace builders. And your response is, yes, but if those peace builders hadn't been working on civil relations for 30 years, you could have you know, multiplied that number by at least 10 of deaths. They're preventing things from getting even more out of hand. And of course, people say, well, how do you prove that? How do you prove a negative? So on my way back, I, sat, I got in a cab and I sat in the front seat with the, I was going to the airport early in the morning, I sat in the front seat with the cab driver. I could tell right away he was a Protestant. I thought, I got it. <laughs> so I said, uh, tell me about, you grew up on Shankill Road? He said, yeah, I grew up on Shankill Road. I said, well, did you join one of the Ulster Volunteer Forces, one of the paramilitary? He said, no, I never joined. You never joined? He said, yeah, my brother joined, but you know, it's hard to get out once you join. They, they just run guns and drugs, and it's kind of cynical, and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, why didn't you join? 
and I wish I could affect the brogue. You'll have to say this for me. He said, well, when I was 14 years old, my mother made me go to the place called Corimila, and I'd never interacted with any Catholics before. But I'm with other 14-year-olds, and I realize they don't have horns and tails. And we deal with them for a while. We get them, and they're not too different from us. And so the logic of killing them was lost on me. I'm hugging this poor guy. I mean, sitting in his lap almost while he's driving. They kept saying, you're my negative proof. You know, he went to Corimila. He didn't get the logic of it. He resisted joining the paramilitaries. That's the moral imagination. And it's a little thing, but he didn't shoot at anybody. You know, that's something. And I think that's what we hope for in this context, realistically. Did you give him a tip? I gave um, him a big so, tip. Um, <laughs> the clock is moving remorselessly. So what I'm going to do is um, ask for maybe little groups of questions, maybe three or so. And I'm going to ask you to be really brief, or I'm going to be um, um, strong-willed about this. So uh, let's have questions um, uh, uh, pretty quickly. Um, so let's start here. Uh, uh, And then let's just keep going for a bit, yeah? Any other, anybody like to add into that? If you could maybe uh, wait for the microphones as well, that would be really helpful. Hi, yes, I just wanted to ask about um, the integral human development, how that can speak to power, um, especially as uh, some of the aspects that you were mentioning relate to st structural change, actually. And the current development practice doesn't really go there. And um, some of the, what we were talking about at the beginning about the difference between develop, you know, the language of developing world and developed world, and a lot of that has to do with power and power relations globally. So I'm wondering, where do we go with integral human development when it comes to that Great. issue? Thank Great. You. Any other, um, or we could, yeah, one more and then we'll take some answers. Yeah. Um, if you could speak at all to merging development practitioners and uh, religious leaders, what that means for sexual minorities around the world. So meaning like LGBTQ people. To, to merge. Like, like uh, the World Bank partnering with religious leaders uh, to develop services, what that means for LGBTQ people in those Good. areas. Good, thanks. Okay, you want to have sure. a quick yeah. quote? Sure, uh, I'm the biggest violator of succinct parsimony here, <laughs> so I'll try to be parsimonious in my answers. Let me take the structural change one very, and I'll do it, it's a big, important question. Um, let me do it, I don't want to be glib here, but um, if you read, if, have read Laudato Si, this papal encyclical, um, it, you know that the Pope, it's all about power for the Pope. And, and that's why... He's getting a lot of opposition. He talks about the technocratic paradigm in which you know, these global markets are all about big business and the consumer, and, it's and the whole system is constantly driven 
by the need to consume more in order to, to uh, enrich those who are already rich and powerful, and that this paradigm has to be changed. Now that has all kinds of power implications and structural change implications. It's a real challenge for, their, even in the Catholic world, there are a lot of very wealthy Catholics or neoliberal capitalist Catholics, whatever, they're Irish Catholics were the second most uh, affluent ethnic group after American Jews in the 20th century. So they are the people the Pope's talking about in America, some of them. And this is not, you know, this is a real internal tension in the church, in the Catholic church. But it, it, it is to the extent that that technocratic paradigm analysis gets thrown out to other people because people do not want to hear about structural change, certainly one that's based on this kind of indictment of the entire paradigm of kind of he doesn't use the term neoliberal capitalism, but that's what he's talking about. I mean, he, I think he may maybe use that term, but that's what he's at. So it's very much related to power. And this is also my little anecdote about the Baron guys, and they, you know, they, the government comes and ignores them, or they send the militias, they do their army, they have no political power whatsoever. You know, that can't continue. It's just soul-killing to see these people who are so good, trying their best to live, an honest, love of enemies, moral imagination life, and, and they have absolutely no power. Absolutely no power. And there's a recognition that unless we find a way to leverage that, uh, we're trying to hire scholars in Notre Dame right now who are studying this question. How do you have, how do you leverage political society slash civil society where people come out who are not professional civil society people but are the poor or the workers or, and really affect political change? That is the big question. How do you do that? So that's, that's on that. Um, on the gay, lesbian, sexual minority question with religion and development, it's very interesting, intriguing question. And I would say one of the results in the longer, maybe midterm, I don't think it's gonna happen tomorrow generally, but if in fact uh, what that essay is trying to suggest is religious actors, development actors, peace builder actors should be in conversation, dialogue, and collaboration where possible. And here's, here's some of the obstacles, but here's why it's necessary. If you can imagine a world in which religious actors and development actors and peace building actors are in co uh, collaboration and you look at the question of human dignity. When I, I made a reference to this early on, I don't know how elliptical it was, but I was trying to say, when you talk about the dignity of every person that's not dependent upon any characteristic, sexual orientation, gender, et cetera, and you take that value statement to its logical extreme, and I, I, here I was talking about Catholicism, but when you, when you begin to start talking openly with groups about values, you have to have the risk of transformation on every side. I mean, not just one-sided. Um, my mentor, Martin Marty, has a very interesting book called um, When Faiths Collide. I recommend it to you, Blackwell. Elegant little essay, about 150 pages. And one of the important parts of that book, I think the best contribution, is he goes, he draws on all kinds of literature, the risk of hospitality is the way he puts it. That is to say, when you're really hospitable to other people, whatever, in, in your, especially if you're in professional alliance with them, but even in a neighborhood and community, you take the risk of being hospitable. What is the risk? The risk is you're transformed by it. 
It's not because you're bringing strangers into your home. That could be considered a risk in various ways. The risk of bringing strangers into your home, so to speak, is that if you're really open to them, you're really hospitable, you're really a host, you're really a partner, you can be transformed by that. So you, I think we can, moral imagination, you can think, what does it mean to have groups coming together who come from a religious tradition, a secular tradition, a human rights tradition, and they're all talking about what does it mean to serve human dignity? And what does that really mean when, and that, those conversations are going on now, but they kind of go on in a polemical, kind of abstract way of fighting. When you're, when you're working on a problem together, and this is what I was trying to allude to about Catholic Relief Services, turn the tape off because I don't mean to be criticizing, or, or even holding up what, what the particular practice of CRS is, or are these other faith-based organizations. What I was trying to get at is the complex players in a relationship like that in an organization to the extent that those can be mutually transformative, I think it's a good thing. And, and one would hope that that would be one outcome, but who's to say that one would hope that? How do these faith-based organizations deal with extremists? Is that? Do they, do they deal with extremists? Well, one of the, I should say, again, apologize for knowing the Catholic world best, and I, I could say things about Islamic relief and others, but I, I'm on firmer ground, so I'll speak from the tradition I know best. Um, Catholic Relief Services has just made peace building one of its central uh, missions. It, it had started after Rwanda. In 19, before 1994, Catholic Relief Services went into countries and had blinders on about religion, culture. They said, that, that, uh, the approach I criticized in the beginning. They came in, they irrigated the fields, they helped people get their goods to market, et cetera. They intentionally, before 1994, intentionally said, we are not going to pay attention to culture, religion, because we're not, they would mumble the word Catholic sometimes then too, because they didn't want to be associated with whatever. So in 94 what happens, they've been in Rwanda for decades. It's a Catholic country. That genocide came, they had no idea it was coming or how to deal with it or the Catholic components of it. And they thought to themselves, what are we doing? We're Catholic, at least, you know, in many ways Catholic. We're not a parish, we're not a cathedral, but we're, and we need to use not just Catholicism, but culture and religion to help. So they, they made peace building at that point, but they started funding it. It kind of lulled um, uh, after 9-11 a little bit because of partly how to deal with extremists, now it's come back. And part of it is, how do you identify partners in the field um, who are, are, are going to, and, and this the World Bank topic was, some, one of you mentioned it, World Bank topic is, how do you identify partners in the field who are also vulnerable to extremism in various ways, either to, to recruiting or to reprisals? So they're beginning to think about that. That's the one I know about. I'm not sure about, some of the other, uh, how Islamic Relief thinks about that, or World Vision, quite as much. I know that's the case there. Um, would you ask your question again? I didn't quite, quite get it. Have you ever thought about including 
Great. Uh, that's absolutely the case. Absolutely right. I apologize for being a one-trick pony on this, but have you read Laudato Si? The first thing that Laudato, the Laudato Si comes from St. Francis's hymn to Mother Nature. And the whole thing is framed around, it's, for the, it's the planet and the poor, and that, that creation, nature, is a partner. It's, it's who we are. It's our common home. And he does cite other traditions on this. Uh, I mean, I know there's also a, a pretty vast literature um, on ecology, eco-spirituality, and so forth. It, you know, this isn't an academic document, that encyclical, so he's not citing all that stuff. But that's there. And what he does is, and there, there are people who are studying this within various Christian uh, traditions, denominations, and that encyclical frames it that way, that our partner in this is nature, and we have, um, and there's a really some almost lyrical passages about the planet and the poor, and their relationship, which is organic and natural, and they're both suffering because of this technocratic paradigm. And so, if you if you leave, if you, and he criticizes the instrumentalization of nature, and that's one of the main themes: technocratic instrumentalization of nature. That it's just you know. It, it, um, rather sustainable or unsustainable, it's it's just that's not the purpose of nature. So that it's it's really rich in that, and and you articulated other avenues to that same general point very eloquently there. So, quick answer is yes. I mean, if you leave that out, you miss the whole point of the of a develop a development that is local, and that that focuses on the poor primarily, preferential option for the poor, because. The world, nature is the the key partner there. So, do you think it would help if some of the all of the language about the IHB, you know, program might be less anthropocentric, anthropocentric, whatever language? If, do you think that would help incorporate that reality and that understanding into the? Whole yeah, world? certainly, certainly. I would think you'd have to have a discourse has to change on this because it can be it can really easily become instrumentalized. One last question. I don't want to end on this, but... Um, Could you use the microphone, please? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I was thinking about a former student, a graduate from here, Chris Hedges, who you might know, with a piece circulating around social media today about, I think, not just the death of the liberal church, but kind of the suicide uh, of the liberal church and also of its seminaries. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the Croc Center? and how you think this kind of work in teaching is vital and relevant and would help with the ongoing sustainability of our um, 
seminaries and divinity schools uh, around the world. And Chris has never been known to exaggerate or trade in hyperbole. <laughs> Actually, I like what he says. I, I, I um, think he's very good. Um, that's, that's a good question. It requires more thought than I'm going to be able to give it, but let me give you a very succinct answer because I know we're at the limits of our time. Um, many of the value... Uh, it's clear, at least to me, it seems clear that the values and the ethos of many of our liberal churches, the, the word liberal is so problematic, but, but our churches that are focused on human dignity, social justice, care for the poor, and uh, making sure the marginalized are no longer marginalized, you can fill in the descriptives there that those, the values that, and, and we're talking here about churches, so those values certainly seem to me to resonate very deeply with Christ, what, what I take to be the gospel, right? And not I alone. And uh, that, by the way, I have to say, plugging the Pope again, I, I, I told my children, I have four children, 2.5 of them are still Catholic. The 0.5 is because of Our Lady of Guadalupe, my daughter. But, um, but, um, but I say, you wonder why your father has hung in there. I've been waiting for a pope like this. And this is why I'm, I'm in there. I just unabashedly will say that because it, it, he reminds me of the gospel too in some of the things he's saying about mercy and compassion and care for the poor and so on. So what a rich resource our churches could again become, and some still are, for a global movement that address, that really puts the marginalized, the poor, the dispossessed, back in the center of the conversation, or at least not so far out of it. That, that, and, and our political discourse in this country is so impoverished in a different way by the complete inability of even a Bernie, uh, Bernie, Bernie Madoff, sorry, <laughs> I don't mean that, Bernie Sanders, you know, who's railing against Wall Street, but I don't hear him talk as much about the poor. You know, he's talking about the middle class, which is, a, but to, to be able to reintroduce that priority into the conversation and base it on respect for the human person and for our common humanity. That's so desperately needed. It's so desperately needed because it's a challenge to a paradigm that's only about economic growth and material well-being. Nothing wrong with that, but it's only about that. So if, if there are ways in which that message that also resonates, you know, Islam, it resonates within Islam, and Islamic teachings resonate with Christians and Buddhists. They, you know, the world's religious traditions have a, uh, a, I don't want to conflate them. They are distinct. They have their own depths and their own internal complexities and pluralism. But there's a narrative there that should be part of the discourse. And I know that's what interreligious and interfaith is kind of part of, but I think it's actually been a failure of imagination in many, part, in many ways of this kind of moral imagination to really decide um, how are we going to move this forward as a political issue? How are we gonna move this forward as a part of the political discourse in this country? And the churches could be a, a source for that, not the only source, they have to be in collaboration. The churches with the mosque, with the synagogues, with other, the temples, with secular friends, whatever it may be, there has to be real leadership there to think beyond even beyond the kind of interreligious dialogue in a way. What about the seminaries and divinity schools? 
Well, this is for <coughs> the dean to discuss in some other form. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, I can answer that in 10 seconds, <laughs> but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think you've, uh, everybody's been sitting patiently for quite a long time. We can uh, certainly carry on that conversation, you know, uh, 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 later, <coughs> but um, at this stage, I think we'll end this part just by saying that we have a reception now with refreshments in the lobby for uh, until 9 p.m. So you please do stay and um, eat, drink, and be merry and ask questions. Um, if you'd like to purchase a copy of the Oxford Handbook of Religion, Conflict, and Peacebuilding and contribute to Professor Appleby's uh, retirement fund, much depleted <laughs> royalty accounts, um, uh, they're there, um, as is. Um, um, John Paul Litterac's uh, Moral Imagination. So if, if you'd like to purchase those books, they're available there to be purchased. We invite you to visit the RPP's new website, uh, Religion and Practice of Peace, new website. Be sure to sign up for the mailing list to receive announcements of upcoming events. Spread the news, the message uh, to all your friends and all potential donors. Um, <laughs> our, um, our February session will focus on Buddhist responses to climate change. Uh, March session will explore approaches to transforming racialized divides in the United States based on the African and European American experience. Um, so both of these will offer valuable insights for addressing important issues of our time. So please come and join us. And finally, just thanks again to um, uh, Dr. Appleby uh, for making the trip out and for um, uh, helping us think about uh, these things and you know, these kind of integrated ways and thinking about moral imagination and thinking about the next, I think, you know, I think what I really enjoyed about your talk and your essay is that, you know, that we know where we've come from over the last, since the Second World War, as you put it tonight, where are we going over the next 10 or 20 years, I think is really what we need to be thinking really hard about. And, You've given us some terrific food for thought for that, so we really appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.